You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Thanks for downloading another special edition of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This one is another one from the Theology Beer Camp. And with this one, uh, we're going to start off with a lecture by Adam Clark. He's a professor at Xavier University specializing in black theology and theology more generally. His talk was largely about the narrow view of salvation that sometimes characterizes American Christianity and thinking about a broader notion of it. Uh, Following that, uh, you're going to hear an interview that I had with Adam and with Christian Pyatt, uh, who is on the Homebrewed Culture cast. Uh, The three of us were talking about salvation, going off of Adam's talk, but also about uh, Christian's recent book, Leaving a Holiness Behind. If that sounds like a pun involving an orifice, it is. Uh, For that reason, you're going to hear that uh, our audio editor, Amber Lee Copeland, is going to have to beep out some words uh, because this is the Christian Humanist Radio Network and not the Homebrewed Network. But I hope that you enjoy this. Uh, There's going to be some more Theology Beer Camp material coming along. And right now, I just want to encourage you to take a look at some of the other podcasts featured there. You're going to hear them uh, if you listen to Homebrewed Christianity, but Homebrewed obviously is a great show. Uh, Brew Theology is one of the newest members featuring a an interfaith dialogue uh, get-together in Denver, Colorado. You've also, of course, got Crackers and Grape Juice that I've talked about before on the show. You've got Todd Littleton's Pathological podcast. Uh, you've got Newsworthy with Norsworthy. You're going to hear Luke Norsworthy uh, abuse me verbally here in the next few days. But one of the coolest things about this event was just to hear all of these podcasts, to interact with the people I had heard before. And I want to encourage you all to subscribe to them, give them a listen, uh, you know, join in the fun because that's what this is all about. But I am, you know, starting to border on a trip fuller intro here. Uh, so without further delay, the first file you're going to hear is Adam Clark's lecture from the first morning of Theology Beer Camp 2017. Okay, what I'm going to present to you this morning is one piece out of a larger work. And I'm a little nervous because I cut and pasted a lot of it together, and I hope it flows the way it actually intended to. Um, the way I usually, you know, and, I, and I'm taking some risks too because I, I added a, a couple contemporary pieces in it. The way I usually do theology is I first start with trying to define the contemporary situation. So the contemporary situation always serves as kind of a backdrop to my theological construction. And when I was trying to think about what's new about the historical moment we're in, I thought about um, the two words that both Webster, well, not two different words, but Webster's Dictionary, and I think it was Cambridge, um, said were the most looked up words in 2016. Does anybody know those two words? No? Okay. One was surreal. Surreal. The other one was post-truth. Post-truth. Yeah, so I said, that's really kind of fascinating. Like, people are really interested in surreal and post-truth. Now, those of us who've been in the academy for a long time know that, you know, the whole postmodernist folks have been talking about 
the postmodern condition for, you know, 15, 20, 30 years. And these and now these words are starting to kind of populate even kind of popular and journalistic um, discourses. So I found that very fascinating how people are catching up with where the academy has already been. So I say that, oh, okay, here we go. So surreal approach truth. How do we speak about Christian salvation in a post-truth age? An age where the status of truth has been devalued. There's no unified grasp of objective reality. The world has no center. Only differing viewpoints and perspectives. There are no absolute or timeless truths. Meaning is not inherent. And part of this truth post-truth thing comes from the rise of Trump, right? The idea that facts and usually things that disqualify other people didn't disqualify him. So facts and absolutes seem to be very more malleable. So in a post-truth society, authentic social life has been replaced by representation. All that was once directly lived has become mere representation. Spectacle. Everything's spectacle. Images have been supplanted or have replaced genuine human interaction. And a spectacle is not a collection of images. Rather, it's the social relationship between people that is mediated by images. In a world which is really topsy-turvy, the true is always just the moment in what's false. So what does it mean to talk about Christian salvation in a world that's rapidly changing, where Old things that used to mean something objective and concrete no longer mean that anymore. Well, we used to have genuine face-to-face interactions, but they're replaced by images and representation. Right? When Bonhoeffer confronted dramatic cultural shifts in the 1940s, he invited us to non-religiously interpret the concepts of salvation, repentance, faith, justification, rebirth, sanctification. His responses reflect his religionless reinterpretation of Christianity. In this reinterpretation, God is not called upon to solve the problems of pain and suffering as if divine intervention by God is going to clean up all the human mess and solve our contradictions. But we as Christians were called to participate with God in powerlessness and weakness, to throw ourselves into the world. And that's the first moment. First moment of reflection. Second moment, Eric Fromm, the great psychologist, once asked, why does the human race prefer necrophilia to biophilia? Why does the human race prefer necrophilia to biophilia? That's a heavy question. Why do we prefer the love of death to the love of life? Violence over peace, power over to power with, 
greed to letting go. Now, any serious reading of the Liberatius critiques reveal that necrophilia, according to Liberatius, permeates Western cultures. It's a culture in love with and invested in the death and the powers and principalities of death. So Einstein once remarked that no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. Right? So there needs to be a new consciousness to kind of think our way out, to kind of move our way out of the kind of cultural moment that we find ourselves in. Most of Christian history, Christian salvation has been framed as a story between faith and the non-believer. That is, folks who lack faith have been the imagined subjects of Christian theological reflection. But in this new age, following the liberationists, we must make a shift in the imagined subject from the non-believer to faith in the hurting and broken person. That is to say, the dehumanized person must be the subject of how we understand faith and soteriology, right? The shift calls into question not just the religious world, but emphasizes like the relationship between the soul and God, but calls into question our economic, cultural, political, and social relationships. And this alters our, our thinking in soteriology. Traditional questions such as what does it mean between justice before God or how do we stand as righteous before God get shifts to what does justice mean among people. The stress on the love of God becomes stressed on the love of God and neighbor. Uh, personal conversion, which becomes a kind of a popular Christianity stress, goes, moves more to social transformation. Salvation in the afterlife becomes shifted to salvation in this life. Uh, the um, progress through or development through the inculcation of Christian values becomes development through scientific technologies and social ideologies. No longer is there one human problem with one answer. The problem traditionally has been identified as sin against God, and its answer is the sacrificial death of Jesus. We experience life in many different ways and from many different perspectives. And there's no universal human being or problem that we all face. Our answer to the Jesus question depends in large part on the situation we find ourselves in. Right? And we find ourselves in a multiple, a multiple of different situations. One, one way of thinking about this that I do in my class um, I learned this from Brian McLaren. He talked about that he asked, um, I think, some students, what are the major issues that you talk about in your church? What are the major issues that your church talks about? Let me ask this, this group. What, what are some of the major issues that come out of your church? Yes. Sin. Right. Okay. Anybody else? What's that? Gender leadership, okay? Purity and sexual ethics. Sexual what? Preference, okay? Yes. What does resurrection look like? Okay. Heaven and hell, okay. Poverty, good. 
All right, let me, let, and the second question is this. What are the major issues that challenge the world? What are the major crises that challenge the world? Inequality, poverty, sexism, dogma, war, injustice, all right? Yes. Okay, inability to dialogue across lines, okay. How do you hear that? Oh, America's president, right, yes. Global warming, all right. So here's the deal, um, and you guys probably have more elevated conversations than a lot of folks that he was talking to, and sometimes in my class as well, because sometimes they say stuff like music or, you know, did Bishop Betty Long go to hell? <laughs> or, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Because, but his point was, is if you look at what the church conversation is and what, look at the major crisis facing the world, there's very little overlap, right? Very little overlap. Mostly none in most groups. You had a few where you said poverty here. But how is it that you're supposed to be a person of faith when the conversation of the church does not meet the crisis in the world, right? That we have to have an understanding of Jesus and salvation that connects to the very crisis that's tearing up our world or we're not being faithful to the biblical message, And I would even go further and add that some of the problems in the world, Christianity doesn't just talk about it, it contributes to them, right? So some of the problems such as division and racism and gender exploitation has been contributed by Christian nations and Christian churches. They are part of the cycle of the problem. So not only do we need to connect, but there needs to be a liberation of Christianity, right? That how could Christianity be an agent of transformation if it's not transformed itself? So my own liberationist commitments require me to kind of do a a soteriology or a notion of salvation that embraces the world. It doesn't just try to escape from it. Anything else would be kind of a docetism, that is like a kind of an over-spiritualization. So we have to have an incarnational sense of what salvation is. And that also, these commitments require me to kind of unmask the myth of neutrality. Because under the guise of neutrality, Christian salvation has been used to support the evils of slavery and genocide and segregation. Right? So liberation for me is not just one characteristic among others. It's the horizon in which everything else is viewed. And in this sense, there's no such thing as universal theology right? or salvation, that all concepts of salvation are interested. So if you say God is love, but you act unlovingly, critique needs to be brought to bear. Right? If God loves all, it means there must be food for all, must be shelter for all, must be clothing. So the motive of soteriology, and soteriology is it's a fancy name for this kind of study of the doctrine of salvation in Christian thought. From a liberationist orientation, is not immortality or personal fulfillment, but a desire for the world 
transformed. So my understanding of salvation is it's a vision of wholeness and completeness beyond brokenness. Right? A vision of wholeness and completeness beyond brokenness. But in a post-truth age, conceptions of wholeness and completeness are met with a hermeneutic of suspicion. Why? Because so many visions of wholeness, especially, Christ, especially for, uh, Christian ones, have been used as coping mechanisms aimed at making life more bearable rather than being agents of transformation. And in popular and traditional Christianity, visions of wholeness and completeness have been associated with the promise of heaven, right? Heaven's the place where wholeness and completeness occurs. So Christian hymns such as, in the sweet by and by, right? Heaven is located by and by, die, you get your pie in the sky, that kind of thing. That all that kind of like is, is more about the promise of heaven in the afterlife. That is really, you know, much more of a reflection of the kind of tough life you had to bear on earth, right? So instead of trying to talk about transformation of reality, this is kind of a critique that Marx made of how religion or Christianity more specifically functions. Right? The promise of heaven is a kind of a compensatory gesture for making life bearable on earth. So framing stories about what it means to be complete. I mean, we see this in our culture all the time. I see it in my IG post where I see, like, you know, some people I follow. A lot of it's about relationships, heterosexual relationships, sexual intimacies, um, I saw one this morning that says, I respect the man that respects me when I'm not around, right? Like the idea of completeness or wholeness was about a certain type of partnership that occurs when respect is given. Like that's the type of vision. And a lot of memes do that same thing. It comes out of people's personal experience and and relationships. So these wisdom posts really are projecting visions of what the person images, what wholeness and completeness looks like, generally on a personal level in their interpersonal relationships. It generally has to do with sexual anxiety or relationship frustration in terms of that. Or some with kind of hedonistic desire about mind-blowing sex with different partners all the time. Like that's the vision of completeness and wholeness that comes out of that. But the promise of heaven has been something that is deeply related to not just religious culture, but secular culture as well. I mean, drugs promise this. Um, you know, shifts, shifts in, you know, music promises this. I mean, there are so many different ways to talk about our notions of transcendence. The world can be seen as like a certain type of vending machine, where you have all different types of promises to look better, to be smarter, to um, be healthier, and they have items, commodities to purchase to help you have a more improved life. Even the promise of eternal life, right, is something that our culture promises. People like Ray Kurzweil and transhumanism You know, Kurzweil talks about genetics and nanotechnology and robotics 
are going to define this revolution that's coming up in the future, where we're able to reprogram our biology and maybe download our consciousness so that life, eternal life, at least as you see, it's possible, right? You don't need necessarily a religious provision. Cryogenetics, you could preserve the body, possibly, indefinitely, and maybe even revive the body later on. So my point being is that religion is alive and well. The desire for heaven, the desire for transcendence, desire to get rid of an earthly body and assume like a greater heavenly body. But what happens is that these promises rarely, if ever, work. Right? They end up in deep disappointments where people feel inadequate, incultate self-doubt, lead to more meaninglessness. No, I should be something. I can't live up to a certain type of ideal. And guilt. So even if things did work, such as even if you could preserve your body for some indefinite period of time, that doesn't mean that death wouldn't occur either. I mean, not physical death, but the, the Bible, death is not necessarily... Um, the death that's spoken about in the Bible isn't necessarily the physical death, right? Like the death that's most commonly spoke about is a death that's infused in life. A death that's infused in life. And what I mean by that is that the forms of death, let the dead, dead bury the dead, right? Like it's not talking about a physical death. It's talking about people who have experienced death in life, Right? I, pre- I come to bring life in all its fullness. Addressing people who have modes of death, but life is going to come so people could leave, not just exist, but live life with fullness. If you could really live forever and not experience, you know, the depth of your humanity, the, the, the kind of quality of life, right? If you just had longevity without depth, it's probably not a life worth living. So I wouldn't want that. I don't think that's a real kind of promise that wants to be delivered, just as kind of like longevity without depth. But the Bible talks about meaningfulness. So some of salvation has to talk about a quality of life, a dimension, life in a new register. It's not just talking about extension of life indefinitely. So there's a rich treasury of metaphors in the Bible that talk about salvation. But if you ask most American Protestants, what's the mission of the church? Most would say, to win souls for Jesus Christ. So soul winning is the operative vision of completeness within the Protestant church. And that's not all the church does. It helps you with material things and um, may help you with certain forms of social uplift. But the main kind of um, importance is to win souls. It's the marker of success. I hang out with a lot of preachers and pastors, and many of them say, look, how many souls were won last week at your church? Three? Seven? (laughs) Twenty? In the black church, we talk about opening the doors of the church, which is the most important part of the service. 
And either, then the pastors usually admonish you, look, if you get excited about a football game or a basketball game, you get excited about winning souls for Jesus Christ, right? Like, that's the most important part of the service. And soul winning is about a certain type of confession of faith, giving your hand to the preacher, your heart to the Lord, right? And winning soul is seen as the most pleasing thing you can do for God. God is well pleased when you bring souls to the kingdom. Heaven has smiled upon the church. So this is a, is a notion of salvation of, as afterlife, right? It's the most important relation, according to the church, at least a popular church culture, that you have. And that's the reason why books such as Rob Bell's Love Wins and Carlton Pearson's the, the gospel of inclusion struck such a chord because it went to the heart of evangelical identity. Uh, the conversations that you have in most churches aren't about visions of completeness and salvation that restores right relationships in our economic, our political, our cultural spheres. It's about the soul's relationship with God. So therefore, the conversation that occurs when you see salvation as soul winning becomes pretty narrow, right? Like the kind of conversation that occurs around that, if, you're, if, if that is what salvation means, then, sal- then the type of um, dialogue that it inspires usually goes something like this. Is heaven only for Christians? Does one have to be saved to be Christian to be saved for eternity? Do large number of people suffer from eternal punishment because they have not heard of Christianity or because the presentation of the Christian message in their neighbor or, or their neighbor's love of their birth? And, and actually, let me butcher that up. But probably the most important thing in terms of this is, will Gandhi go to hell, right? Will Gandhi go to hell? That seems to be the one that gets people. He was such a loving man and he practiced nonviolence. Can he really be in hell because just because he didn't accept Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior? And people are all over the map with that, right? Like some people say, yeah, hey, I didn't write that. The Bible says it, right? And others says that that doesn't rationally make sense to me. I mean, how could Gandhi be in hell? You know, I got to say. Another question do some people spend eternity apart from God while others will be in heaven forever? And will the unsaved be separated forever from God in hell? Okay. And what happens in the church is that these questions are spoken with, with such certainty and authority, as if the Bible is univocal on these issues. But this type of certainty in which many pastors speak of is unfaithful to the biblical text because there's a diversity of beliefs about the afterlife. For example, does the afterlife begin at the moment of death or does it begin at the last judgment, the end of times? Is entry into the afterlife by grace or is there another requirement? If there's another requirement, there's something we must do or believe does that mean that Christianity is really a religion of works, right? Because we have to do something in order to do it? 
Or if it's by grace, does that mean that everybody goes to heaven because there's nothing we have to do? There's no requirement? Right? Like, these are some of the kind of, like, issues that the Bible is really not clear, and you can use text to support it. How many do enjoy the afterlife if this is the case? Is it a lot or a few? Is it 144,000? <laughs> right? But scripture can be used to support, you know, a number of views. Is universal salvation, which is the message that has kind of wrecked some, of the, some aspects of the evangelical community. You know, even that, you know, has a biblical foundation, right? But you could argue for both sides. Now, what's strange or a little kind of disturbing, if you don't really study this, is that the concept of the afterlife was really not that central in Israel, right? It's much more central to the contemporary church than it was in, in the context of Hebrew scriptures. The emergence of the afterlife appears late in Israel, its first explicit reference is in the last chapter of the book of Daniel, written around 165 BCE. Earlier books of the Bible either do not mention it or do so very ambiguously. And so the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about heaven and hell, at least not in a comprehensive way. Right? In Matthew, Matthew almost exclusively referenced the kingdom of heaven. And by heaven, it's not so much, so much in the, something in the sky far away, but the kingdom of heaven is near. Right? It's not spatially located in that way. Uh, Luke, the kingdom of heaven is among us and in us. And in Romans, the kingdom of heaven is understood as justice and peace in the Holy Spirit. So a lot of these context, con, um, concepts that are spoken with, with such authority you know, are really not as clear once you read the biblical text. The primary biblical understanding of salvation is this worldly, not otherworldly. Salvation has to do with something that happens in this life, in history, not something on the other side of history. Marcus Borg once remarked that if we're going to make a, a, a list of Christianity's 10 worst contributions to religion, on that list would be popular Christianity's emphasis on the afterlife. Right? On that list, even Mark, would be popular Christianity's emphasis on the afterlife. Now, why would that be? Well, he says, it turns Christianity into a religion of requirements. If there is a heaven, it doesn't seem the right that everybody gets in it. So, so there must be something that separates people who get in from people who don't. You know, naming something that we either believe or something that we do. And such, such an emphasis creates an in-group and an out-group, a saved and an unsaved. And it focuses our emphasis on the next world, not on transformation in this world. So the biblical understanding of salvation is much broader and richer than what the contemporary church uses. Right? There's a, such a focus that salvation means the soul's relationship to God. But biblically, you have things such as from bondage to liberation, right? using the Exodus theme as the primary motif. 
We have a bondage in Egypt and the liberation out of Egypt. Y'all see is Paul. Paul bondage to the law or the powers and liberation from the laws of the power. Estrangement and reconciliation. We've been separated from where we belong, maybe the Garden of Eden, and then we become reconciled to God. Salvation as the love of God, where we go from being condemned and rejected to the beloved of God. Enlightenment, we're blind, but we see. We're in darkness, now we come to light, right? All of these are just different modes of talking about how God acts in the world. Forgiveness and grace, right? New birth. Rebirth, resurrection, multitudes of images, but it gets narrow cast and flattened. But the most popular image of salvation comes with what some has referred to as the fallen redemption paradigm, right? Where salvation is linked to Christ. Salvation is linked, is Christomorphic, has something to do with following Christ. And the saving work of Christ is generally seen as identified with what God did with Jesus on the cross. Right? What God did with Jesus on the cross. And when I say that, I say that that becomes the kind of the privileged starting point for understanding the work of Christ. Now, there are other starting points. Some people can start with the incarnation, right? The birth of Christ. You could talk about the teachings of Christ or the healings of Christ, the miracles. But what the majority of the tradition has developed on the death and resurrection of Christ. In popular part is, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus is a substitutionary sacrifice for your sins. We refer to that as atonement, right? Atonement or at one minute, or reconciliation. It implies that there's been a, a situation of separateness and brokenness between God and the world. And atonement is the process in which those who've been separated are brought near. What has been distorted is untwisted. What has been broken has been made whole. And the reflection is on the redemptive significance of Jesus' death. What is redemptive about the death of Jesus? Right? Most people will, will historically argue that Jesus, uh, agree, I would say, that Jesus died, but the meaning of his death is what people debate. So there are a couple of assumptions where you talk about like the meaning or significance of Jesus' death. First, the assumption is that, look, things are not as they ought to be between God and the world, okay? There's something that's amiss. There's something wrong, and not just a little wrong, but something's profoundly off in the world, okay? And secondly, that right relationship is possible. It's possible that right relationship can be restored with that, with that something off. And how that works is through the death of Jesus Christ. The classical model says that Jesus is a substitute or represents the sinner. Okay? 
Jesus is a substitute that represents the sinner. Or that Jesus' life and ministry offers a radically new alternative or example of living without sin. The second thing. So as a substitute or as an mo- exemplary model. Those are the two kind of primary ways. But there's lots of variations out of those ways. And each vari- variation reflects like the sociological context, right? Like in terms of this, that they're very context-specific and dependent. So for at least seven centuries, from about the fourth century to the, to the uh, seventh century, the dominant conception was that Adam and Eve, by turning away from God in disobedience, they willingly handed themselves over to the devil. Right? The devil had the right to keep human beings um, as slaves. And God is desires to release humanity from the captivity. So what happens? How do you do that? Well, God pays the devil a ransom, his son. And Jesus' Christ's voluntary death was the price that brought humanity's freedom. Now, in our contemporary society, that, you know, if you think about that, that's a little odd. The story is really odd. Although we, you know, in church they say it like it's non-controversial. <laughs> right? Like you just go with it. Jesus, Jesus was a ransom for us. But in a society where you had slavery, right, at the social fact of slavery, where you actually are exchanging to get a slave, right, from an owner, you had to pay a ransom to replace in order to free a slave, that kind of thing might make sense. That language makes sense in light of that, right? Because you had the concrete experience of either seeing slavery, so therefore you understand humanity is enslaved. So the great work of Christ, the liberating work of Christ, was to ransom, to free other folks. So Christ is seen as liberating, as a liberating power from the devil. In the ancient world, people could be released from servitude only if their freedom was bought and the owners permitted it. So there's a social political experience of paying a required price to obtain freedom from slavery. So in a slave society, the ransom kind of language makes sense. Now there's another theory called the satisfaction theory, which was based on a St. Anselm in the feudal system. Right? And it's alternative theory. God owes nothing to any creature, including the devil. Like Anselm said, look, this idea of God and the devil, you know, as equals, where God has to pay a ransom to a supposed equal doesn't make sense. So the way Anselm tried to understand this, and I'm giving it kind of a user-friendly interpretation, but God doesn't owe anything to the, the creature, including the devil. And because the devil has no rights over God, God is not obligated to pay the devil a ransom for the release of humankind. What was wrong about original sin is that it dishonored God. Instead of showing gratitude to God who created them and showered them with gifts on earth, Adam and Eve showed disregard to God by disobeying God's commandments. Moreover, the sin of disobedience was heinous for it involved dishonoring an infinitely superior being 
with an inferior being. The only way to restore proper order to the world was to make right relationships between God and humanity and to make an appropriate satisfaction to God. Due to the infinite magnitude of sin, humans can't make restitution. Yet they should be the ones making restitution since they, and they alone, dishonor God. So what's the solution? To have a God-man, namely Jesus, to make the necessary satisfaction for humanity. As divine, freely choosing to die for our sake, his action had infinite value. As humans, his actions came from the very required party, namely the human race, which, which um, dishonor God. Okay? So this is more like kind of a, a, a feudal system where you have this, a sense of um, noblemen and serfs. And a nobleman would, could, would have to be deferential. I mean, excuse me, a servant would have to be deferential to a nobleman. They couldn't dishonor. And if they did dishonor, they, didn't have, they, didn't, they could not restore honor because they don't have anything to restore it with. You have to have someone come from the outside to do that. So Jesus Christ is coming from the outside to restore honor that human beings already did. So, again, the, the feudalism and the idea of social stratification and social subordinates made that language make sense. Christus Victor, where Jesus defeats Satan, another atonement theory. Uh, Christ's death uh, defeated the powers of evil. Jesus Christ overcomes the power of Satan. It's not a ransom, but it's a liberation. It's a liberation. Penal substitution, which is pretty similar, all humanity deserves to be punished, but Jesus was punished instead. Christ was a, a substitute for all humanity, took on sin and died. Humanity has access to God. Humanity is to be reconciled, okay? Those are models, okay? And there are variations of these, these and they don't work, and some of them work like in concert with each other. They're not to be seen as always separate when, in people's lives. But what they try to do is make sense of what happened on the cross, and generally speaking, there's a spiritual transaction that occurs between God and the devil in these models. Now, second and related to this, and I'll go over this really quick, is, quick, is that how, does these, how do these models or how does activity of atonement affect me personally? Or how do I participate? How do I obtain the salvation that Jesus Christ made possible? How do I make it active in my life? And there are a number of theories of this. If, if this, because what happens to these models is that human beings are pretty passive. The major action is between God and the devil, or God alone, or God and God's self. It's a movement within God, right? But human beings don't have a whole, whole lot to do. So what's the human, how do you make this real personal? Well, the Christian tradition has a number of ways of trying to explain this. Uh, the work of God has universal effect. God did something in Jesus Christ. Salvation achieved um, is something that Christ did, not humans. We achieve salvation through Jesus Christ, but we don't recognize it, meaning that it's there for us because it happened objectively, but we don't recognize it, and we refuse to accept it. 
And part of like what Christianity is about, waking us up to the salvation and invite us to accept what God has already did. Right? So we have to accept it through faith in our heart. Second way of thinking about this is that salvation is placed at the table as a gift. And we must make this real and reach out and try to take it. And we do this through belief, and it's a gift of faith. And there are a few, faith is not something that we do of our, our faith is something that, one is, is first a human action, another is by God's grace, that we don't have the power to accept the gift, and through God's grace, God's grace empowers us to actually accept the gift. So, again, human beings are not the active person in this. It's God's grace that empowers human beings to put in motion that we accept God's gift that already gave us. So some of the critiques of this, and these are you know, just general ways that people have come to think about this, but what happens in this is that much of this has more of an image of divine transaction rather than an image of human transformation, right? So it talks about the transaction that people made, not the transformation. And salvation is reduced to an individual event that's primary, personal, and interior. Therefore, it serves the interests of those in power by discouraging analysis and transformation of the existing social and political structures. This could lead to ethical passivity and undermines our struggle to combat human injustice and oppression. Right? So salvation becomes linked to some type of unholy alliances with political and economic systems that requires victims. So there's been a whole kind of critique from liberationists and feminists about the kind of language of salvation and how these theories of atonement are deeply problematic, especially if you look at the history of slavery, if you look at women's uh, gender oppression, that these... these models are like tied and in, in, in enmeshed in that. So many people either want to critique in terms of actually want to like actually go to something else or radically reform it. Now, what I've tried to do is actually go to, you know, I have some things, some, some alternatives of how to reconstruct some of these in ways that allow more human agency and allow more kind of justice work. But I want to go to uh, another thing, a a separate issue in the interest of time. Because in a post-truth age, again, we're talking about the devaluing of truth claims. I think it's appropriate to talk about new principles of soteriology, right? Something that goes beyond the fall and redemption framework and goes us to a new kind of framing of what salvation looks like. And my thinking about this is to try to understand Christianity as a technology of desire or a discipline of desire. What do I mean by that? Well, historically, Christianity has tried to conceive the human being in terms of desire. This goes back to Augustine. Our hearts are restless until it rests in thee that human beings are constituted by desire, and usually a desire for God. We call that, you know, God's love, a love for God, right? Usually, you know, we talk about love, but love is a certain type of desire 
desire for the neighbor, a desire for God. And the Christian tradition also claims that desire has been corrupted or misdirected. And sin is a term that captures this type of misdirection. It disciplines and enslaves desire. So if we understand Christianity as a technology of desire that kind of shapes our love and redirects our love, we could also understand capitalism as a technology of desire. Read this theologically. That capitalism is not primarily an economic system. It's a technology of desire that rivals Christian faith. And its victory is not merely economic, but it's ontological, meaning that it shapes the type of human beings we are becoming. So the most dominant enslaver of our desire in the contemporary age is capitalism. And its victory hinges on capturing our desires, not just the making money we spent, but the way we're shaped, the way our loves are directed as human beings. So capitalism shapes our desires in ways that make things that are directed toward the market, that we want things, you know, why do we always, you know, I have students in my class and they complain about purchasing books, but they have $600 iPhones. <laughs> I'm like, how are you complaining about a $40 book when you got a $600 iPhone? Or you got $200 sneakers and you're 20 years old, right? You don't even have a real job, right? So desire, to me, becomes the fund of how we're supposed to resist and understand what wholeness and completeness looks like in our contemporary culture. So Christianity is not just a, 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 I would say just a technology desire. It's a counter technology, right? It counters capitalism. It cultivates our desire and passion toward God and neighbor. So the way Augustine once tried to talk about love, he said, look, everyone loves, but the question is, what is the direction of your love? What is direction of your love? When human beings direct their love toward God first, he called that caritas. That's rightly ordered love. That was his vision of wholeness and completeness. When our loves or our affections or our appetites are directed toward lesser objects, he called this, he referred to as, and I might mispronounce this, cupiditas, <laughs> sure I pronounced it, which is disordered love or sin. We rightly order our loves by putting God first and becoming re-enchanted with life, right? Part of salvation is about re-enchantment with life, not escaping from life. I like to call this kind of pushing of desire a new social erotics, a new social erotics. When I talk about a new social erotics, I don't mean erotic in a sexual sense. I mean it in the sense, the classical sense of yearning or desire that we should yearn for one another. We should want to belong to one another. So here gives a sense of Christianity actually pushing us to give of ourselves, to yearn for ourselves, to lose ourselves in helping others, to be persons for others, right? to be committed to losing ourselves 
in making the world a better place. To live enchanted lives that helps people, heals people. Giving ourselves to the world in love. We abandon any attempt to make something of ourselves and we throw ourselves into the world. This is kind of reflecting on Bonhoeffer here. He talks about it, throw ourselves into, some, into the duties, problems, successes, and failures, experiences, and perplexities. And so doing, we throw ourselves completely into the arms of God, See, taking seriously not our own sufferings, but those of God in the world. That is, we lose ourselves, we find ourselves in losing ourselves, right? So in this sense, God is not seen as some object up there, you know, like a sky god, but God becomes groundedness or rootedness. And the ground is something that we arise from, that we discover God as we connect with others. And in this connection, human beings are redeemed. Thank you. So that was what Adam Clark had to say that first morning of the event. Now, the second morning of the event, uh, actually, no, it was the second afternoon of the event by the time I got to talk to him. I got to sit down with uh, Adam and with Christian Pyatt, and here's how that happened. Originally, there were supposed to be four individual episodes, one with Adam, one with Christian, one with Eric Hall, who you're going to hear later on the show, and one with John Cobb. What ended up happening was it was the same day as the Women's March. You might have heard about that the day after Donald Trump's inauguration. So they wanted to keep John Cobb on the main stage so that people who went to those marches could enjoy uh, John Cobb, you know, for the full time. So these two, their interview got crushed together. Eric Hall had a plane to catch. And later on, you'll hear my interview with John Cobb and Trip Fuller behaving badly after my interview with John Cobb. But that's for another day. Right now, uh, I want to lead into this one saying that, you know, when I talk with these two guys, these are two guys with whom I had shared a house with two nights, and that just made it a whole lot of fun. So, for real now, without further delay, Adam Clark, Christian Pyatt from Theology Beer Camp 2017. Thanks for downloading another special episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm coming to you from Theology Beer Camp in Redondo Beach, California. Uh, this is an event put on by the Homebrew Christianity Network and Trip Fuller. And I'm sitting here with Adam Clark of Xavier University and with Christian Pyatt of the Homebrewed Culture Cast, one of the shows on the Homebrewed Network. Uh, and the, the task before us today, it seems, is to fuse the work of these two guys uh, into something coherent. So let's see <laughs> how well I am capable of doing that. <laughs> I like that. So, Adam, one of the things that I like the most about your talk, uh, Adam spoke on the first morning uh, of the event, uh, is that you talked about a sort of plurality of metaphors for salvation from the biblical witness. Mm. Uh, and I'm, I'm curious, one of the things that I guess I was still waiting for uh, is a sense of, in your mind, do these metaphors have to exist as a sort of either-or thing, or can we synthesize them into both-and sorts of constructions? I... Uh, as I'm sure I've told you because I can't go 10 minutes without mentioning Dante, I, I think that, that Dante, <laughs> among Christian thinkers, you know, synthesizes the liberation and the soul-saving and the community uh, and uh, the education of desires, all these things that you were talking about, wow. into a sort of architectonic picture. 
and oh. it's really a glorious oh. thing. Is that an act of false consciousness, or do you think that that's possible? Well, that's a good question. I hadn't thought about Dante in that way, but uh, you gave me something right there. But I did. I didn't mean to put it as an either-or proposition, because certainly, I mean, very few things scriptural work in either-or propos- um, ways. Um, what I what I aim to do in that discussion, even I, I taught class last last semester about salvation, is to try to introduce uh, lay Christians to the range of possibilities about salvation, to not that salvation isn't exclusively about soul winning, right? Like the church would have you see that salvation includes a number of of I guess metaphorical or that God's activity works in a multitude of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Even the idea of the word of God, like word is a metaphor for communication of God. And we seem that the only communication of God is only through Jesus Christ's death on the cross, right? But I want to say that God communicates in a multitude of ways. So I was just trying to open up and broaden and not, and give people space to understand God's activity in a range of ways. Okay, that's fair enough. And one of the implications of that sort of single model model of salvation that some churches adhere to, and one of the nice things about an event like this is that folks from different backgrounds remind me how weird I am. Uh, but most people remind me how weird I am. But in that, I was a teenage convert, and I immediately from there went to a Christian liberal arts college. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. Christianity has always been, for me, an intellectual tradition. Mm-hmm. There's never been this sense that some questions are off limits. I mean, it's just, of course you're going to ask questions. That's what you do as a Christian. Wow. And in fact, you're not a very good one if you don't ask questions, okay. right? Okay. But Christian, Piatt, who's also a good Christian... Uh, in fact, depends on who you ask. Well, you're my favorite guy named Christian. Right. So, um, you know, in his book, Leaving a Holiness Behind, I mean, talks about some of the implications of this sort of singular, I would say, narrow focus on one kind of salvation, that soul winning. Tell me, Christian, and tell our listeners about what kinds of damage can be done when your sole purpose as a Christian in the world is to get people who ain't yet to be one. Right. Well, I mean, the in the sort of more academic approach to it, I guess uh, I look at that as a byproduct, a byproduct of imperialism mm-hmm. rather than more. expression of the gospel. Mm-hmm. So it's this idea of colonizing the unbelievers mm-hmm. on behalf of the church, mm-hmm. and this was uh, very much a kind of a Constantinian idea, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I'm making my book sound way more nerdy, nerdy and scholarly than it really was. <laughs> but basically, the point is when you, you know, the way I would say it in this book is, if you talk more than you listen, if you assume that you have something that everybody else needs without even really knowing where they're coming from, and that you can't be changed or learn or benefit from them as much or more than the other way around then you're not going to come off as someone that they want to emulate. You're going to come off as an Mm -hmm. Mm. And I know because I were, (laughs) I were one, you know, Mm -hmm. and I'm not saying, in fact, in the book, I say I'm still an 
while working on it. Uh, <laughs> nobody gets over that. And if you do, then you're really an because <laughs> you think you aren't anymore, which makes you an even bigger one. So it's kind of a catch-22, I guess. But mm-hmm. but the, the point is I actually tried to convert one of my friends who was Jewish without truly understanding mm-hmm. the Jewish faith, mm-hmm. the traditions of Jewish faith, and the breadth of understanding – to you know, not necessarily breadth of you know understandings of salvation, but of Jesus mm-hmm. that even a non-Christian would have. Mm-hmm. And when he started talking to me about, well, I don't have problem with Jesus as a great prophet. I don't have a problem even calling him the Son of God because we're all children of God. Mm-hmm. I don't even have a problem with him being specially anointed. It's when you get into this, you know, manifestation of God in flesh that we start to depart. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, but you got to take it all. And he's like, well, I'm not really sure that you know where I'm coming from mm-hmm. before you decide that I need what you've got. Mm-hmm. And he says, I actually know quite a bit about Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I'm going about this backwards. Mm-hmm. You know, I have no cultural competency where I'm talking. Mm-hmm. I have no sensitivity to the the human engagement going on here, the depth of relationship and earning the right. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, yeah, I realized I had to make some changes. And further in the last some, you know, 30 years since I got thrown out of the church for asking questions, mm-hmm. uh, I've realized that it's a systemic issue uh, as a whole that needs to be addressed, which is the idea behind living a holiness behind. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Let me follow up on that because one of the narratives from the New Testament that often gets cited uh, as sort of a grounds for that way of, you know, bringing the gospel to all folks, I mean, is something like, you know, the approach of St. Paul to the Areopagus in Acts 17. So, I mean, with the constellation of concerns that you just raised and that you raised in this book, talk to our listeners a little bit about how you read that narrative. I mean, how does it differ from an a-holy faith and how, you know, is there overlap? I mean, are we misreading it when we take it as a mandate to go and do as St. Paul does, or are we even doing that? That was a really badly phrased question. So I, I run think with I that. understand. I think I understand, and maybe I'll just answer it in the best way I can think of, even if it's not really an answer to your question. Uh-huh, we'll see. Sure. You can let me know later if I failed it at answering. But <laughs> I think we have to consider that uh, Paul and his uh, colleagues, his mm-hmm. uh, the fellow apostles, yeah. you know, in a broad sense. Uh, we're, we're living within occupied imperialist environments by and large. And so they were offering something that was an alternative to the status quo. Mm-hmm. But now we are the powers that be. We are the status quo, mm-hmm. especially in our North American contemporary context. That's right. And then to presume that we can, ex- we need to have the exact same mandate as a marginalized, underground, emerging community of faith that didn't see itself as uh, the institutionalism as even necessary or ne- maybe even a possibility. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like Paul was sitting out doing the church planting, you know, mm-hmm. sanctioned by the bishop or anything. Mm-hmm. He, he had a movement and he felt that people needed to know uh, he was on fire about that. Okay. But the reality is he also taught a, a profound warning about just going into a community and mm-hmm. starting to, you know, be this sort of loud mouth without understanding the comp, the, uh, the context of where you're going. 
Sure, sure. You know, when you're when you're with the Greeks, you should be like the Greeks. You should mm-hmm. understand. And I have become all things to all people. So yes. by all means, I might save a few. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and exactly. Mm-hmm. And you know, I've got my own issues with Paul. Mm-hmm. He was certainly a, a fervent believer in what what he stood for. Um, but I also think that we tend to cherry pick from mm-hmm. Paul what it is that we find that most accommodates what we already want to believe and do. And, and we're guilty of all of that. All, all of us are guilty of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think the first step in becoming less a-holy <laughs> about mm-hmm. it is being honest about that. And by the way, folks, the reason we keep using that uh, neologism is that uh, Christian's book is called Leaving A-Holiness Behind. Uh, it is just the kind of pun that you think it is. Yes. Uh, and uh, I should also mention that uh, – you know, for the last three days, uh, Adam and Christian and I have been roommates. So, yes. uh, you know, if, if if either one starts talking about the ways that I am an a-hole, they speak from knowledge. Personal experience. Not from <laughs> <laughs> but Adam, I want to turn back to you with the shift that you proposed in your talk uh, mm-hmm. from a salvation that it's rooted exclusively in divine act to something that I would call more synergistic. And you can tell me if that's a bad word for it, mm-hmm. where it is God inspiring a transformation of desire in human beings so that human beings might be the uh, the agents of this you know salvation for the larger world you're obviously talking about something that has deep roots in the ancient church but also deep roots in North American black theology mm-hmm. talk a little bit about your research in the latter I mean you can talk about dr. King you talk about you know any figures who are active right now how are they re-envisioning theology to be more capacious? Beyond the simple soul-saving model, yeah. Well, in the in the in the black theological tradition, um, there was a shift between from faith in the unbeliever to faith in the dehumanized or the non-person, meaning that salvation was always pitched to people who would lack faith. So the idea is to actually. Um, Get people to confess Jesus Christ the Lord as Savior. Their soul go to soul go to heaven, and if they don't, their soul goes to hell. That kind of, you know, popular Christianity model mm-hmm. in the Black tradition. And it, I wouldn't say like everybody, but I would say probably in the Antipellum Black Church, it also reasserted with people like Martin Luther King Jr., where King was criticized because he never, um, because he didn't go out and save souls, he broke laws. They saw him as a lawbreaker. So a lot of the critique of his fellow clergymen was like, what are you out there sitting there rabble-rousing, causing trouble, breaking the law, getting thrown in jail? Why aren't you saving Joe? That's, that is the task of a minister. And what he would say is, I can't talk about saving souls when the belly is hungry and people are poor. I've got to talk about the condition that you find the human being in and match that to the conditions of the soul. So for him, it was about the whole person and not just the relationship between the soul and God. And that becomes a spark for liberationist orientation where you're talking about the whole person. So to talk about Christian faith in relationship to the dehumanized or the non-person is a very different orientation because it calls into the question, what's dehumanizing them? Not just the religious world, but the political world, the cultural world, so that therefore all of that needs to be put in right relationship. 
mm-hmm. right? So that's that that that's the first step. Now, in terms of the the actual issue of desire. I got that more from looking at contemporary activists who are so burnt out and even preachers mm-hmm. who are so burnt out. They need to read Dante. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Dante. Okay. That, that, um, I started doing some, um, studying of the contemplative traditions. I work at a Jesuit university and I mm-hmm. started going through the spiritual exercises and started to look at contemplation and meditative traditions and disciplines of the spirit and started to see how it talks about a freedom from disordered affections, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Like part of what the, the, the idea of the spiritual exercises is that we, that we have to get our souls free from clinging on to disordered affections so we can be free to love and serve God, mm-hmm. right? And I think that in a capitalist and consumer society, we have so many things that claim our spirit and our soul mm-hmm. in such a way that even when we get, we, when people put before us a way of loving and serving God, we might want to go watch ESPN or go to the movies <laughs> or that type of thing. And no one's telling us this, right, directly. It's just we choose to miss the mark. Right. It's a right? vision of the good life, not a proposition about the good life. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So to me, I was thinking about what radicalism looks like in the 21st century mm-hmm. in North America. And I think radical, uh, that radicalism um, and subversiveness will be about subverting this type of capitalistic society where desire has been colonized to actually go through, to actually be redirected to spectacle and silliness and not mm-hmm. directed toward things that are liberating. And that's what I was really thinking about. Okay, very good. Well, guys, I, I've just been informed by uh, Nathaniel Welch, who's been the brains of this event, that uh, we're down to about two minutes. So I want to kind of do a, a little speed round here. Uh, you know, as you two have known, because I've told you my story, I'm a professor at a small, pretty conservative evangelical college in North Georgia, chicken country. Um, I'll ask... Christian, and then I'll ask Adam, uh, you know, from your work, uh, what word would you speak to the 19-year-old college freshman that I'm going to return to, to better represent Christ in the world we're living in? Christian, take a swing first. I I think first, uh, one of the things that I advise people is to look to the words of Gandhi uh, as sort of a prophetic prophetic. predictor of where we have ended up ended up which is uh i like your christ i don't like your christians Mm. because your christians are so unlike your christ Mm. and what john cobb was talking about earlier today which is we talk about christology and we talk about theology all day but we don't seem to talk and to put into practice very much of the imitating the life and teachings of jesus in our daily life which is exactly what you were saying as well, that sacrificial walk of the choices of reorienting over uh, when it's not convenient. Right. And I think that those are the places where we're going to find and, – and to start with community, personal mm-hmm. relationship, that that cannot necessarily happen mediated always through a screen. Right, right. Mm-hmm. Adam, talk to my students. Well, you know, one of the things I mentioned is that I quoted Einstein and said – a problem can't be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it, that we, have, we need a radical shift in consciousness in order to see things differently. Um, and that that consciousness has to push us further into, a, you know, a new and bold future. And to me, um, 
I think I would see, you know, figures, prophetic figures such as King, such as Dorothy Day, such as Thomas Merton, as really kind of seeds and paths that we should model and emulate if we're going to actually, you know, turn faith around and put it on an upward trajectory. Okay, very good. I've got one more promise that I made and I'm going to keep before I get chased out of here. Uh, Christian, I hear you're also a novelist. I am, yes, yes. Uh, first novel came out a couple of years ago called Blood Doctrine. Uh, the idea is that this uh, uh, far-flung religious extremist group, uh, tangentially connected to the church, has decided they are uh, losing patience and they're going to invoke the second coming. And uh, what I can tell you is that they employ uh, cloning and uh, securing, procuring DNA from the crucifixion. And uh, <laughs> it involves the byproduct of that project uh, and uh, hijinks ensue. No. Right. <laughs> it's a thriller. So, so, so yeah. yes, folks, Jesus sci-fi That's right. is what we're talking about. Exactly. Well, folks, this is The Christian Humanist. I'm Nathan Gilmore. Uh, I've been here with Christian Pyatt, author of Blood Doctrine and of Leaving a Holiness Behind, and with Adam Clark, author of the soon-to-be-coming Homebrewed Guide to Salvation. I encourage you to run out there and get all of them. But for now, uh, they are running me on out of the room. So this is Nathan Gilmore from The Christian Humanist saying, Go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.